0: Please take out your Bible as we're going to be going to the book of Revelation. Surprise, surprise, The whole series is called The Keys of Revelation, trying to understand the key ideas, the main points of this book. And clearly we've seen already that Jesus Christ is indeed coming again. The very opening promise of the book of Revelation and the repeated closing promise of the book of Revelation is not only that Jesus is coming, but that he's coming soon. The signs are all around us. We've studied time prophecy. We see where we are in earth's history. And last evening, we saw that throughout the book of Revelation, there is a call to faithfulness to God's word and the keeping of his what? Commandments. The law of God apparently is going to be the hallmark of God's people in the last days. As we see in Revelation chapter 22 and verse 14, one that we read last night and we'll open with this evening Blessed are those who what? Do His commandments. Now, does it say blessed are those who see His commandments or who study His commandments or hear about or read? No, it says blessed are those who, what's that word? Do. Blessed are those who do His commandments that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the sea. Friends, I hope that your deepest desire, your most earnest Christian hope, is to go through the gates of the city and eat from the tree of life. Amen? Amen. And according to the God's word, out of Christ's mouth himself, the revelation of Jesus Christ, it says, blessed are those who do his commandments, that they have right to the tree of life and enter into the gates of that city. Tonight, we're going to be studying a topic entitled satanic amnesia. It's a very ominous sounding title. Dun, dun, dun. But what is that thing? Of course, amnesia simply means forgetting. A condition where you don't remember stuff you should remember, right? And satanic simply means influenced by the devil. The devil wants you to forget the very thing God said to remember. But before we study God's Word at all, what do we need to do? Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you allow us another day of life And that at this time and this day, you've allowed us to come together to fellowship, to enjoy each other's company, but most importantly, Lord, to study your word. And now we ask that you would be our teacher tonight. Help your word to be self-explanatory. Help it to be clear. And more than just clear and information, Lord, help it to be convicting by the power of your Holy Spirit. Help us to see with new eyes what you ask of us, and help us to be those faithful people who enter into the holy city and eat from the tree of life with you. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, we read right there in Revelation, Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. Now, my question for you is, does the Bible say that the wages of sins, plural, is death, or the wages of sin is death? Sin itself. So my question, if God's goal is to seek and to save, surely it is Satan's goal to lose people, to keep them out of the kingdom. God wants them in, Satan wants them out, yes? So apparently what gets you in is the blood of Jesus, which pardons your past and empowers you to keep his commandments. And thus Satan says, you know what I need to do? If the promise in Revelation 22 is, blessed are those who do his commandments What is his objective? To get you to break his commands. Get you to live a life of unfaithfulness, therefore unfitting you for heaven. He wants us to be away from the tree of life. He doesn't want us to enter the the city. He knows he's going down and he's looking for collateral damage. He wants to see how many he can lose. Now we're right there in the book of Revelation. Just back up a couple pages there to the book of James, not too far back. To the left. Of course, there is no right once you're in the book of Revelation, so that's handy. But in the book of James, chapter 2, we find this very, very important biblical principle. James, chapter 2, and verse 10. James, chapter 2, and verse 10. Notice carefully what it says. For whoever shall keep how much? the whole law, and yet stumble in how many points? One point. He is guilty of what? All. Oh. That's an important biblical principle. God says, here are my ten commandments. In fact, here's my, entire, uh, here's my entire word of God. Every word, Christ says, as we talked about in our Q&A, man should live not by bread, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. All Scripture is God-breathed. God's Ten Commandment law, the heart of who he is, is not a negotiable set like we talk about a smorgasbord, I'll take a discount, I'll take half off. No, James even makes it clear, it's like God's law is non-negotiable, it simply is one whole unit, therefore, if you stumble in one point, it's the same as being guilty of all. So I might honor my parents, I might never take the Lord's name in vain, but I might commit adultery. Have I sinned and come short of the glory of God? Yes. Even though I've honored my parents, even though I haven't stolen, even though, but I've broken the law. And in heaven's balance, I'm out. See what I'm saying? I have voided that. Now I need a savior. I need redemption. I need forgiveness and power to correct repentance. I need to be brought back in. So James here again, look at chapter two, verse 10, makes this very clear statement. Whoever shall keep the whole y- law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. So here's my question for you. If you were Satan, which praise the Lord, you're not. <laughs> but if you were on his side, would you try to get everyone to break all of God's laws? No. That's inefficient work. What's the most efficient thing you can do? Just get him to break one, right? Get them comfortable thinking, oh, you're good because you do this. You're good because, just like you go door to door. Would you like to have Bible study? No, 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 I'm going to be fine. If, you go to have, if God were to come tonight, would you go to have? Sure, I would. Why? Because I'm good. <laughs> According to whose standard, right? God, Satan wants us to be comfortable right where we are, thinking that we're good, but in violation of God's law. One point, guilty of all. Now, I want to bring out something that's sitting right in the heart of God's law that most Christians have not seen. And we're going to begin our study tonight all the way back at the other end of the Bible, in the book of Genesis. In your pew Bible, that's that's page 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, the very first sentence of the Bible. And I want to call your attention to something fascinating. And perhaps you've never seen this part of the study, but we're going to build a foundation now, Starting with the Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning, what happened? God created the heavens and the earth. So clearly, according to this passage, who created the heavens and the earth? God, according to this passage. Now, let's go a little bit more in detail. God is how many persons? Three persons. One God, three persons. Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all the members of the Godhead apparently were involved in the creation of the world, but one in particular was the one executing the plan. And maybe you didn't know that, but I want to show you clearly from Scripture that this is the truth. That amongst the Godhead, one had the specific role of executing the plan of creation. Look to the Gospel of John, if you would, please. John chapter 1. John chapter 1. And there we'll begin with verse 1. Much like we began with Genesis 1 1, now we'll begin with John chapter 1 and verse 1. And while you're finding John chapter 1 and verse 1, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are known as the four what? Gospels. They each tell the story of one individual. Who is that person? Jesus Christ. So when he introduces this person, he, in John chapter 1, he's talking about whom? Jesus Christ. And notice what John says about Jesus Christ. An interesting language that he borrows to do it. What are the first three words? Where else have we seen that? Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, right? Now in John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the word, and remember this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, this is about Jesus, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And you could stop right there and say, aha, this is someone besides God. But then what's he say next? And the Word was God. Now, we can wrap our minds around that all we want. Somehow you can be with God and be God at the same time. Clearly, we have a plurality concept in the members of the Godhead, that there's a father, a son and a Holy Spirit, but when you talk about them, that is still one God. And here he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Now it goes on to verse 3. What does it say about this Jesus Christ? All things were made, what? Through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. So all things were made through whom? Jesus Christ. And if it weren't for Jesus, nothing would have been made. Makes that patently clear. Let's go to Colossians now. Keep going to the right in your Bibles. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Chapter 1. This time, instead of the Apostle John, we have the Apostle Paul writing. But notice he says the exact same thing about Jesus Christ, that he was the creator of the Godhead. Colossians chapter 1, starting with verse 15. It says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now pause right there. Some people will get a hang up and say, aha, that means he was a created being. Slow down. It doesn't mean firstborn in the fact of sequentially giving birth first. It means firstborn in terms of preeminence. It's the one who's over all of the things, and it tells us why he is. Look again at verse fifteen. He that is Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Why? Verse sixteen. For by him what things? All things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things. Clearly, is he a created being or is he the creator? He's the creator. He is before all things, and in him all things consist. So Jesus Christ, when you read in Genesis chapter 1, when it says, In the beginning God created, the one who executed that plan, rolled up his sleeves, and made man in his image was none other than Jesus Christ, the Son of God, according to the Word of God. So now let's go back to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, now why do we make this big point? Well, we'll come back to be important later, but Genesis chapter 2, I want to emphasize that God is our creator, and more specifically than just saying God in general, that Jesus Christ is the one who came down, executed the Father's will, formed the world that we see and the people that we are. And if you were to go back, by the way, if you were to go back, in what condition did God make the world? When Jesus created the world, was it like kind of blemished and a little bit tarnished and there was evil already there? No. If you go back and study that Genesis chapter 1 creation story of day 1, day 2, day 3, day 4, day 5, day 6, each day he comes back and he reviews what he did. And over and over he says, and he saw what he had made and it was, what word does he use, do you know? Good. Then he looks again, good, good. Good. Until we get to day six, and then he adds on. Look at the end of Genesis chapter one. Look at verse 31. Then God saw how much? Everything that he had made, and this is still Jesus Christ, yes. All things were made through him. And indeed it was in what condition? Very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. At the end of the work week, the very first week, Of all weeks in our earth's history, Jesus Christ, step by step, had made everything good, good, good. And when he got to the end of it all, he looked at all of it in its entirety and declared it to be very good. There was no sin, no rebellion. It was perfect in all its ways. It had come from his own hands exactly how he wanted it to be. Now, with that in mind, we go to Genesis chapter 2, still right there on the same page. Look at verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were what? Finished. So if someone ever asks you how long was creation week or how long did it take God to make the earth, if you say seven days, it's incorrect because his work was done in how many days? Six days. And at the end of it, he says, and it was all very good. And that was day six. Thus it records again in chapter two in verse one. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were, what's that word? Finished. So there's only six days in a week, right? No. He makes one more day. But let me ask you something. Is it a day he's going to work on? No. Because he just said all of his work was what? Finished. Then why don't we have a six-day week? If it only takes God six days to do stuff and he sets the week in motion, what was this next day for? Well, let's look at verse 2. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had done. Was God working on the seventh day? No, it was an end of work. The work was over. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had done, past tense, and he, what's that word, rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then he goes on to say, then God, so you get the picture. Day six, as it comes to a, he, on day six he works, and as it comes to a close, he declares it very good. Day seven, he does no work, but instead of working, he rests. And at the end of that day, what does he do? He makes a declaration about that day. Notice what he does for this day. He rests from all the work that he had done. And then he makes a declaration in verse 3. Then God, and remember who is God here? Jesus Christ. Then God did what? Blessed the seventh day. And what's the next word? Sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. What does that word sanctified it mean? To make holy, to set apart as special and holy. You think of words like the, have them make me a sanctuary. It's a dwelling place for God. And here on this seventh day, not a day that he worked, a day that all of its entirety, he simply rested, and, he, and at the end of it, he makes a declaration that what I just did is holy. I've set that apart, apart from the rest of the week, as my holy day. He blessed the seventh day. We're going to be noticing a lot of definitive articles, not a seventh day. The seventh day. He blessed it and sanctified it. He made it holy. Let me ask you another question. We've kind of built these in, and every step of the way is logical so far. How much sin was in the world when God established the seventh-day Sabbath? None. So was his establishment of the seventh-day Sabbath part of the ceremonial law that points to Christ as the redeemer of the world to save us from our sins? No. It predates sin. It's part of his original, ideal plan for humanity. Six days of work, and the seventh day he blessed and sanctified, set it apart as holy. Let's go down to our fill-in-the-blanks here. In the creation of our world, Christ worked how many days? Six days. And what's that next word? He rested on the seventh. So he worked six and then rested On one day, the seventh day, though he had called previous days good, only the seventh did he make holy. Now, that doesn't mean that the other days were bad. There's good, and he looks at it, oh, it's all very good, so good. But beyond good, beyond very good, he comes to the Sabbath day and he says, This has my blessing. It's not that the other was cursed. But those are days for work. And he says, this is my day that I'm going to set apart for a holy purpose, blessed it, sanctified it, and only the seventh day does he call holy. And I want to bring to this point a third little fill in the blank there. The Sabbath was instituted before there was a single, and I want you to write this in, before sin, but watch this. How many Jews were in existence? None. Had God carved out a chosen people to represent his character in the world because the world was fallen innocent? No. The Sabbath was instituted before there was a single Jew and even before man sinned. This is part of God's original creation ideal. In fact, when his people started to drift away, you know that... Of course, immediately, almost immediately, they have Genesis chapter 1, good, 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 very good. Genesis chapter 2, oh, the Lord blessed the seventh day and hallowed it. And Genesis chapter 3, we fall into sin. It's a pretty quick drop to the bottom when you start reading Scripture, okay? You get two chapters, boom, we're down. And God's people, he kept working with them, trying to get them faithful, trying to bring out, and then there would Cain would murder Abel, or this and that. And there would be a lineage, and, and it, then the two lines would come together. Oh, the flood had to wipe everything out. And then God carved out a people, and they were supposed to keep his law and represent his character in the world. And they went down into Egypt in slavery. And for several generations there, they became in their minds Egyptians. And the Lord had to recalibrate them to that original ideal. And so he sent a prophet by the name of Moses to go into Pharaoh and say, Let my what? People go. I'm going to have a people on the earth who are faithful to my law. Let them go. And he's going to make a special nation out of them. Now, watch something interesting that you might not pick up on in a casual reading, but go to the book of Exodus now. Exodus, of course, is the very next book of the Bible, records this coming out of God's people. And we're going to go to Exodus chapter 5. You recall that by this time, the Jewish people, well, they weren't Jewish yet, but the Israelite, the family, the children of Jacob, were growing so abundantly that it terrified the Egyptians. A pharaoh came to the throne who did not know Joseph, if you read the story well. And boy, they started treating the Israelites harshly. And it went from just being mean to oppressive and to finally enslaving them. And they had a very tough lot. But Moses comes along with the message, let my people go that they may come out and worship me. And watch what happens. Exodus chapter 5, starting with verse 4. Pharaoh does not warm to the idea well, as you recall. He wasn't like, oh yeah, sure, go ahead. It took plague after plague, and working with him, working with him. Finally, you know, the Lord hardened his heart, and it was a a mess. But look at Exodus chapter 5, verse 4. Then the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people from their what? So what got their attention? Moses and Aaron started some reforms among the children of Israel to bring them back to God's original ideals, and it reached the attention of the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh, and he said, why do you take them from their what? Work. Get back to your labor. And Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are many now, and you make them, what's that word? Rest from their labor. An interesting thing, do you know the Hebrew word for rest is there? Shabbat, Sabbath. You know, we're working these people real hard, seven days a week, and you come in here with your religious reforms, trying to bring them back to God's ideals, and what apparently had he instituted? Sabbath rest. You're making the people rest from their labors, and I'm trying to run a slave yard. <laughs> Those two things don't work mix well together. In fact, you skip down inside the same passage. Go down to verse 8. He increases their workload. If you can have time off, then we'll make the other days hard. Look what it says. And you shall lay on them the quota of bricks which they made before. You shall not reduce it, for they are idle. He's like, you've got a whole day where they're supposed to be working, but instead they're resting. They're Sabbathing. King of Pharaoh's like, well, I'm going to work it out of them. But it caught his attention. God's people were coming back to his ideal that he originally established. And Pharaoh took note. Of course, if you know the story at all, the Lord mightily intervened. Plague after plague after plague. And finally, God's people were released. But only after the most tragic of plagues, the death of the firstborn. At that Pharaoh and his armies let them go, but even as they were leaving, they regretted it and changed their mind and chased them. And there's a whole story in the book of Exodus. You've got to read it sometime. But As the Lord was leading them out, they crossed miraculously through the Red Sea, and the Lord was trying to teach his people to rely on him and to trust him. So he leads them out into the wilderness with not enough food, not enough water, And they start to doubt. They start to complain. And the Lord institutes something for them to demonstrate His faithfulness. That He is a God who never changes and He keeps His promise. And if He says, Go this way, I can keep you in this way. Go to Exodus chapter 16. Exodus chapter 16. The Lord gives them bread from heaven. But how the Lord gives them bread for heaven is very instructive as to what his ideals are, what his plans for them are. If we had time, we'd read through the whole thing, but basically the summary is each day, starting with day number one, day number two, day number three, day number four, and all the six days in a row, the Lord would... Give them, or rain down from heaven, this f- bread-like substance called manna. You've heard of manna, yes? Okay. And every morning they were to eat it, they were to collect what they would need for that day, but they were specifically not supposed to collect enough for two days, because the second day's food, would, what would happen to if you kept it overnight? It would spoil. If you read through it, it's not just it would kind of have a bad odor. It would stink. It would have maggots. It was gross. But on the one day, oh, it was fresh and nice. You could boil it, bake it, stretch it, spin it, cook it, whatever you want to do with the stuff. It's phenomenal. One day, shelf life. Next day, maggots. And, of course, the lesson was that they're to rely on God every day for all their needs. Now, this would happen on the first day, the second day, third day, fourth day, fifth day. But on the sixth day, the rules changed. He said, on this day, not only can you collect two days' worth, but you must collect two days' worth. And in the same way that I miraculously made the stuff spoil overnight, I will miraculously keep the stuff clean and fresh on this night. So that when you wake up in the morning, you don't have to go and work and collect your food. In fact, there won't even be any on the ground to collect. You're supposed to collect a double portion on the sixth day, so that on the seventh day, you don't have to work for your food. You just get to do what? Rest. It's already taken care of. A day before, there was a preparation day for the Sabbath. Look what it says, Exodus chapter 16 Look at verse 26. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day of the Sabbath, there will be none. Now that story is important, especially as we look at where it is located in the Scripture. This is Exodus chapter what? 16. Where do the Ten Commandments come in the Bible? Exodus chapter 20. They don't need to be a brain surgeon. But Exodus 16 occurs before Exodus 20, yes? Let me ask you a question. Did God have an expectation of keeping his seventh-day Sabbath holy before he gave the law at Mount Sinai? Absolutely. It was part of his original ideal from the very beginning, part of the Garden of Eden plan that he established for humanity before there was a Jew, before there was sin, before there was any Ten Commandment law given from Mount Sinai, God said, remember the Sabbath day. Which is exactly what he said, by the way, in Exodus chapter 20. When the Lord speaks to his people, gives them his Ten Commandment law, we often talk about how he wrote it on tables of stone, which is true, he did. But before he wrote it with his finger on tables of stone, he spoke it with his own voice in their hearing, and it terrified them. <laughs> and they said, please just write it down. <laughs> or talk to Moses, but we trust you. Okay. But it so impressed these people. And that was what the Lord was going for. I want you to remember that I am your God, the creator of heaven and earth, and you are subject to me. In fact, look how the commandments start. Exodus chapter 20, look at verse 1. And God, what's that next word? Spoke all these words saying, I am whom? The Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And then he starts in, you shall have how many? No other gods before me. Commandment. Number. And he just starts rattling off. Just so you know, I am the Lord. Here are my expectations. You're going to be my people. Here are my laws. The first one, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Out of the house of bondage. I mean, sorry. You shall have no other gods before me. Verse 4. You shall not make for yourself any carved image. Verse 7. The third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God. How? In vain. But now look at verse 8. Remember what? The Sabbath day to keep it. How? Let's look at that sentence again. So many important things right there. The very first word is what? Remember. Simple concept. You can only remember something that has previously occurred. Yes? Right? He says, remember the Sabbath day. Is God here making up a new thing called a Sabbath? No. He says, remember. Now, does he say a Sabbath day? Remember to take one-seventh of the week off. No. Remember the Sabbath sabbath day to do what with it does it say to make it holy no can humanity make anything holy of course not who made it holy god did specifically who made it holy jesus christ he made it holy and apparently our job is just to remember that he did that and to maintain its holiness and we might think well how do we keep something holy well the commandment doesn't stop It explains its expectation. Again, verse 8, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. Do you see that definite article again? How many gods are there? One. How many holy days does he have? One. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do what? No work. You nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who's within thy gates. Now, I imagine that was written in there because you think, all right, I won't work, but I'll get people to work for me. (laughs) He's like, that's not what we're talking about. You and anyone who's attached to you, anyone within your sphere of influence, anyone that you're connected with, he's like, you have a responsibility to care for you and your household. And he defines your kids, even your animals, strangers, servants. Boy, I'm guessing if there was a place you wanted to be a servant, it was in Israel. (laughs) You get every seventh day off. And why is He set it up like this? Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is these Why does He do that? Look at verse 11. For this reason. For in how many days? Six days the Lord, and who is the Lord here? Jesus Christ made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord, that is Jesus Christ, Blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it, made it holy. It says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. But our topic tonight is satanic amnesia. He doesn't have to make you break all God's law, just a part of it. The one thing God says to remember is the one thing Satan working furiously to get us to forget. Now I bring up all this. Just turn our our worksheets over. Our study guides over here. I bring up this Jesus as the creator. Jesus is the one who worked six days. Jesus is the one who set the Sabbath apart as holy. Thus we would expect that when Jesus was manifest in humanity... That when the fullness of time had come, that God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, that He would be as consistent in His humanity as He was in His creatorship. That the Creator Jesus would be consistent with the Redeemer Jesus, and vice versa. Because it's one consistent God. And this is what we see. Luke chapter 4. Let's start there. Luke chapter 4. Let's look at Jesus' relationship to the Sabbath. Now, we've already seen that Jesus created the Sabbath, yes? So if there was anyone who was going to change the Sabbath, who would it be? Jesus. He would stand up and say, I give you a new commandment. I change the law, something like that. But look at how Jesus related in his humanity to the Sabbath day. Luke chapter 4 and verse 16. So he came where? To Nazareth. What was unique about Nazareth? was where he was brought up. Look what it said right there. Where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on what? The Sabbath day and stood to read. Now Jesus began his public ministry at about the age of 30. And he had been brought up in this town of Nazareth for roughly 30 years. His entire life was only 33 and a half years. So once he started his ministry, he only had three and a half years left, right? So the vast majority of his life was not spent in public ministry, but in private life in Nazareth, being subject to his parents and being a good, dutiful son. But apparently, what was his custom during his 30 years of growth and development into manhood? He'd keep the Sabbath. He'd go to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. That was his custom. And then when he began his ministry... He didn't turn away from that and institute something new. What's the very first thing he does? Goes right back to Nazareth and goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath day as his custom was. That's just what he did. Mark chapter 2. Just one book to the left. Mark chapter 2, verses 27 and 28. Now, this is a powerful thought here. At this time, you have to understand that the Jews were very, very particular about Sabbath-keeping. So much so that they went far beyond what God's law said, and they started making up their own laws to make it even more Sabbath than God had made it, if you can believe it. God said, keep it holy. They said, no, no, we're going to make it even holier. And they started putting rules about how much you could carry in your hand, how far you could walk, and they started defining what was work and what was rest. When a common sense, plain reading of Scripture, you know what your duty is. But they started imposing extra laws, and according to their understanding, Jesus Christ broke the Sabbath law. Now think about how ludicrous that is, because Jesus Christ was the one who made the Sabbath in the first place. He had kept the Sabbath his whole earthly life, and then he gets accused of Sabbath-breaking. Now, there are many times when I'm in Scripture, when I look at the Bible, and I think, man, if I were God, mm." (laughs) or if I was Jesus, I would roll up my sleeves and at least shake them. (laughs) But look at the logic that Jesus employs in answering the question, answering the charge of Sabbath breaking. We're in Mark chapter 2, and look at verse 27. And he said to them, the Sabbath was what? Made. Now, I know it says made for man, but I want to pause right there. The Sabbath was what? Just as much as day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six. The Sabbath was part of God's creation ideal. It was made. And who is the maker? Jesus Christ. He says the Sabbath was made. It didn't evolve. It's not a construct that humanity came up with. Oh, you know what would be good? Six days and a day off. Let's call this. No, 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 no. God said it had a starting point. Jesus said it was made, and it was made for whom? Do any of you have a version there that say the Sabbath was made for Jews? Nope. The Sabbath was made for man. The Greek word there, it's right here in our fill in the blanks. The word translated man, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. The word translated man is the Greek word anthropos. What field of study comes from that Greek derivative? Anthropology, the study of humanity, the study of all people everywhere, people in general. And Jesus Christ, the maker of heaven and earth, the establisher of the seventh-day Sabbath, the sanctifier of that day, says the Sabbath was made for whom? Man. And by man, he does not mean Jewish men or Israelites or Old Testament people. He says humanity. All mankind, male and female, young or old, Old Testament or New Testament, Jesus simply says It was made for all man. So when we go back to our passage in Mark chapter 2, when Jesus says, and he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath, look what he adds in verse 28. Therefore, the Son of Man, and who is the Son of Man? Jesus Christ, that was his moniker for himself. The Son of Man is what? Lord of the what? Jesus Christ, he declares of himself, is the Lord of the Sabbath because he made it. I don't know how it has come to be that the Lord's day is called something else, but there's only one day in all of Scripture that's the Lord's day. It's the day that he set apart as holy, in which he rested from all the work that he had made. And Jesus Christ said, The Sabbath was made for man, and the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. So let's go to our second fill in the blank. Since Jesus made both man and the Sabbath, he is rightfully Lord of both. Do you ever think about that? Even if you didn't, even if you didn't accept Christ's offer of salvation, would he still have rights to your life? Sure. Why? Because he made you, right? He has the patent on you. He has the copyright on you. He's the registered trademark of you. He said, you can run off whatever, but I still own you because I made you. But doubly that, not only did I make you, but when you ran away and you rebelled against me, I came and got you back. I bought you back with my own blood, he says. So he calls himself the Lord of, so it makes sense that he's the Lord of man, that he is our Lord. But he also says, I'm also Lord of the Sabbath. Why? Because he made it. It's his by rights. He doesn't assume it. He doesn't get transferred. He's the one who set it up. Luke chapter 23. The close of Jesus' life. Starting with verse 52. Well, I'll just start with verse 50 for just a little bit of context. Jesus has just died on the cross. In Luke chapter 23, we'll start with verse 50. Luke 23, starting with verse 50. We read of the events of that afternoon and evening. Now behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and just man. He had not consented to their decision and deed, that is, those who killed Christ. He was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen, and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock, where no one had ever lain before. But notice what it says in verse 54. That day, when he did all that activity, asking for the body of Christ, that Jesus died, that his body was taken down and placed in the tomb, was the what? Preparation. And the what drew near? Sabbath drew near. And the women who had come with him from Galilee followed after, and they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils, but did they go and apply those to the body of Christ? No. What does it say? And they, what? Rested on the Sabbath. Why? Because they keep the commandments of God. They rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. Now think about this. If you've never thought about this before, I think this is just the coolest concept. God oftentimes does things through human agencies or through angel hosts. You know, the Lord God will send his angel to protect you. You think of Daniel. The Lord has sent his angel to shut the lion's mouth, right? But there are some things that the Lord sends himself to do through the person of his son, Jesus Christ. The two great works in the Bible that Christ does with his own hands is the creation of the world and the redemption of fallen man. Creation and redemption. Now think about this. In his first work, he worked six days, and he rested when? On the Sabbath. When he accomplished, what was the last thing he cried out on the cross? It is what? Finished. When his work here on earth was done, it was that sixth day, and he rested on the Sabbath. Whenever Christ finishes a work, he always rests on the Sabbath. It's a powerful thought that he's our creator and he rested on the Sabbath. He's our redeemer and he rested on the Sabbath. By the way, could he have raised himself up again? Sure. Christ says, I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it up. Why didn't he just lay down for a few hours and then wake up and the Because just like those women, he rests on the Sabbath according to the commandment. Think about that. Christ left us an example that we should keep. Nowhere in Christ's life do you ever see a record of him changing the day of his own creation to something else. So we continue. By the way, you might have this well, which day is the seventh day? You've been talking about one, two, three, four, five, six, but we talk about Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. What is the actual day? Who's to know? You heard the calendar has been changed. Yada yada yada. Let me tell you something. Sometimes during the year, people love that excuse until other times of the year they seem to know squarely which day is which. For instance, right now, look in your little study guide there. The day Jesus died is commonly referred to as good what? Friday. They don't call it a good sixth day. They call it Good Friday, just in case there's any confusion. Good Friday. Now the day that he came out of the tomb is called Easter, what? Sunday. So the day that he rested in the tomb is Saturday, the Sabbath. The day Jesus died is known as Good Friday. The day he arose is known as Easter Sunday. And then people will say, well, who knows which day is the Saturday? Which day is the Sabbath day? Well, you just said preparation day before the Sabbath is Good Friday. That means that the Sabbath is Saturday. By the way, the Lord, you might hear this too. Wow, but the Lord instituted Sunday as the day of rest in honor of his resurrection. Well, there's two problems with that. Number one, there's absolutely no scriptural basis for it, which that's the only reason you need right there. But. Also, number two, the Lord did institute something to memorialize his death, burial, and resurrection. But it wasn't a new Sabbath day. It's, well, you've got to come back. We'll study that later. But in a message entitled Burying the Dead, you'll find out what the Lord did, to inst- what, inst- what he instituted to memorialize his death, burial, and resurrection. And it wasn't a change of the Sabbath. It was something else. But we'll go on. Now, you might say, yes, 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 but he kept it in his life because he was was an Old Testament Jew. But now with the death of Christ, things changed. Things were radically different. Now you will see Sunday starting to be kept as the... Well, the only problem there is you don't. Now, in fact, let let me show you something. While Jesus was still alive, Matthew chapter 24, we've looked at this passage several times, As Christ is looking not only to the destruction of Jerusalem, which would happen in AD 7, but also to the end of the world at his second coming, he gives signs of his second coming. We're in Matthew chapter 24, the first book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 24. Now look what Jesus says when he talks about the coming destruction of Jerusalem, which would happen in AD 70, roughly 40 years in the future from when he's saying this and also the end of the world, which is roughly 2,000 years later after he's saying this. And he talks about the distress and the terrible persecutions that will come in those days. Okay? Matthew chapter 24, and look carefully at what he says in verse 20. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or when. Now just think about this logically. Christ Christ, By the way, this is coming towards the end of his ministry, but he's looking down future history, if you can say that term. At least 40 years later, and beyond that, another 2,000 years later, talking about the tribulation of the destruction of the Jerusalem and the last days of earth's history. And he says, Pray that your flight does not take place in the winter. Let me ask you a question. Does Christ expect that there will still be seasons 40 years in the future? 2,000 years in the future. Yeah. Apparently there's spring, summer, winter, fall. He's like, if you have to run, pray that it's not in winter. Now, does he also expect that there will be Sabbath keeping in the future? Absolutely. Just as surely as there is winter, there is Sabbath. Christ himself declares. Now let's look at Acts chapter 17. After the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, his ascension into heaven, his ministry now is picked up by his followers. And you remember Jesus had this custom of going into the synagogue on the Sabbath day? But surely the New Testament apostles, these, these guys would change all that. Acts chapter 17 and verse 2. Then Paul, what are the next four words? As his custom was. Sounds a lot like whom? Jesus went into them, and for three sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Turn the page, Acts chapter 18. Paul again in his missionary journey. So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every what? Sabbath, and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. You notice it talks about working, but he takes a day off on the Sabbath. So what does he, you could say, oh yeah, he just happens to be teaching on that day, but he was an apostle. That's all he did every day, six days a week, seven days a week. He preached, 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 but is that what the text says? No. Apparently during the work week, he worked, but on on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue and reasoned with them from the scriptures about Jesus Christ. Now, that's not to say that he wouldn't share the gospel during the week if someone asked him, right? He wasn't like, no, 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 I only share Jesus on Sabbath. No. But he took rest from his manual daily labor and spent the entire day pursuing the work of God, fellowshipping with the people of God in the house of God on the day of God, the Sabbath day, clearly in the New Testament. In fact, let's just go beyond this world altogether. Isaiah chapter 66. Isaiah chapter 66. We're going to be looking at verse 23. Right there towards the very end of that book. That great book of prophecy that looks forward so often to Jesus. Now it looks to not only his first coming, but also his second coming. And notice what it says in verse 23. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another. Uh, You could pause right there and not get hung up on that. But if someone wants to drop a question into the question and answer box, what is that new moon thing about? I'd be willing to answer it, but not now. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another and from what? One Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come to worship before me. Apparently, we're going to be keeping Sabbath not only in this life, but also the life to come. In God's kingdom, where His law is all in all, when His government is universally regarded as the only true thing, the heart of that law says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Can you imagine going into God's kingdom, keeping God's law, and Him breaking one and saying, no, no, you have every Sabbath. No, 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 no. Apparently, even throughout eternity, all will come together and worship God on the Sabbath day. Which brings back to the question. Because by the way, we've had, um, I've seen it happen, where a cash reward has been offered. Literal piles of money, okay, for anyone who can find even one single biblical text that transfers the holiness of the Saturday, the seventh-day Sabbath, to the first day of the week. A lot of people are sure that it's there. Well, go home, look. Find it. See if anywhere it was prophesied that after Christ shall come, the Sabbath will change. Or that Jesus himself corrected that imperfect law and made a new day. Or in honor of his resurrection, he set apart a new day. No. Or that the apostles... In any time after Christ, change that day of worship. You're not going to find it. In fact, there's only one place in the Scripture that you find anyone trying to tinker with God's law. And it's not Jesus Christ. It's the Antichrist. That little horn keeps rearing its head. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 25. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 25. Look at what the Scripture has to say. Speaking again, we've seen these words over and over, but let's see what it's talking about here. He shall speak pompous words against whom? The Most High. Shall persecute the saints of the Most High. And what else shall he try to do? He shall intend, or some versions say, he will try or attempt to change times and law. You remember last night, Satan has a huge contention with God's law, because looking at God's law, he sees who God is. He sees him as the creator, as the one sustainer of life, the only one truly worthy of worship. But what does Satan want? Worship. And there's only one commandment in the law that honors God as creator of heaven and earth that memorializes six, six days of labor and the one day of rest. And it's the one commandment that God said, remember. Now, that's not to mean that you can forget all the other ones, right? But as James says, you can keep the whole law, but if you offend in one point. And this one particular issue strikes at the very heart of the great controversy. This great, epic struggle between Christ and his enemy, Satan. You remember his ultimate aim, Isaiah chapter 14 and verse 14, where he declares, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like what? The Most High. He wants to sit in the temple of God and be worshipped as God. You recall when he met Jesus Christ in face-to-face, hand-to-hand spiritual combat What was his ultimate, final temptation? He showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said, all this will be yours if you will do one thing. And what is that? Worship me. Just bow down and worship me. Even though I'm not the creator, pretend that I am. Just give me that honor. Give me that worship. That's what he wants is to be in the place of God. That's his ultimate aim. Yet, look at the book of Revelation. Apparently, there will be a people who keep the commandments of God. No matter how much pressure Satan puts on them, no matter how many deceptions he tries to throw their way, or temptations, or discouragements, or distractions, or obstacles he places as impediments to faithfulness, they are determined that they will stand for the right though the heavens fall. Revelation chapter 14 and verse 7 describes them this way. Saying with a loud voice, they have a message that says, Fear God and give glory, where? To Him. Notice when they're saying this, by the way. For the hour of His, what? Judgment has come. These are end time people, faithful to God's Word, announcing the judgment has begun. And then they say, And do what? Worship him. Now, who is him? Just in case you're unclear, notice what it says. Who did what? Made heaven and earth. Who is the maker of heaven and earth, according to Scripture? Jesus Christ. Who made the heaven and the earth, the sea and the springs of water. A fascinating little piece of trivia for you. The book of Revelation, as we mentioned over and over, refers to Old Testament things, other parts of Scripture, a great deal. But it never takes an entire text and just inserts it into the book of Revelation. It uses the same wording or the same language or the same name back and forth. But you never see an entire passage just lifted out of an Old Testament book and stuck into the book of Revelation. The closest thing you find to that happening is in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 7. When they see Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him. And that starting with him begins that chunk of Old Testament scripture that's verbatim from another source. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, and the sea. Where does that language come from? Him who made the heavens, the earth, and the sea. Where does that come from? Yeah, the fourth commandment. Exodus chapter 20. For in six days the Lord God made the heavens, the earth, and the sea. And here, this people, apparently at the end of time, are declaring to the world, the hour of his judgment has come. And their response is, what do we do about it? Worship him. We're going to see later on in the book of Revelation there's this great struggle over worship. Jesus Christ, true worship versus the Antichrist called to false worship. Yet God's people say, keep the commandments of God. Worship Him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Revelation chapter 12, verse 17. Just back a page or so. Looking at this final group of people, they're known by just a handful of key criteria. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, which is the church, and went to make war with the rest of her offspring. By the way, what does that tell you about the other offspring? Apparently they've fallen away too, but there is a faithful remnant. With the rest of her offspring, and what are they known for? Who keep the commandments of God and have... The testimony of Jesus Christ. Now again, like I said, we're going to have a whole nother sermon on what is the testimony of Jesus Christ. But you already know what the commandments of God are. He wrote them down in stone. He spoke them with his own voice. Jesus Christ came and fulfilled them in our presence. He says, this is the law. You see it in me. And he declares, I am the Son of Man. I am the Lord, even of the Sabbath. Thus the commandment says, remember the Sabbath day. And it's the one thing that Satan wants us to forget. By the way, there's no reason to keep the seventh-day Sabbath apart from Christ saying it's holy. Now, you don't need a theology degree. You don't need even a religious background not to kill people. Am I right? You should honor your parents because it's just the right thing to do. But God codified that in His law, of course. But the seventh-day Sabbath makes no sense apart from simply honoring the Creator God on the day that He made. That's it. And that's why he says, remember, he didn't say watch. Wouldn't it be handy if the true Sabbath was like 25 hours long? Or the sky was always like green that day. It's like, oh, there's the Sabbath signal. No more guessing, no more thinking. We just, but that's not how it starts off. Sabbath, it rains and it snows and it's, and in Muskegon it just snows most of the time. But it's not perfect weather. It's not an idea. It's it's just another day from human's perspective, except God said, That's my Sabbath day. Your job is to remember it and keep it holy. Which brings us back to our point as we close from last night. Keeping the Sabbath far from being a legalistic burden. People are like, Oh, you're just, that's old law. You're trying to earn your way. No, 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 no. I don't keep the Sabbath to get God to love me. I love God and I keep his commandments. Amen? It was Jesus. You see it right there in John chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, what will you do? Keep my commandments. It's that simple. Keeping the Sabbath far from being a legalistic burden is an active demonstration of a living faith. Which is why God calls in Exodus chapter 31 and verse 13, the Sabbath, one other thing. He calls it a sign between me and between my people. Look at his language. Exodus 33, verse 13. Speak also to the children of Israel, saying, Surely my Sabbath you shall what? Keep. Why? For it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am the Lord who does what? The same God who sanctified a day can sanctify you too. The power of God to create is the same power of God who wants to recreate you into his image. And that experience is only by faith. Thus he says, remember and keep, and it will be a sign between me and you that you trust that I will make you holy too. Let me ask you a question. Has tonight's presentation been clear? Please raise your hand. Praise God. Praise God. Now I'm going to issue a challenge. Now I'm not going to make an appeal. The piano's not playing. I'm not expecting you to come down and repent. There's a couple of passages. They're not in your study guide. They are in your scriptures. They're not in your study guide, but if you'd like to jot them down, that would be good for your reading tonight. I want to encourage you to read Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31, and John chapter 9, verses 39 to 41. I'll say those again. Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31, then John chapter 9, verses 39 to 41. One of them I'll read to you right now. In Acts chapter 17, an interesting statement is made that I think applies so specifically now. Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31. Notice what we see here. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked. Can somebody say amen? Amen. Apparently, according to scripture, you're only responsible for what you know. And you're saying amen, but then you're like, wait a minute. Now I know stuff. Remember what we've been saying all along? Everybody wants to know what God's word says until they find out what God's word says and they wish they didn't know, you know. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now, what's that next word? Commands all men everywhere to repent. Think about it, friends. Is it possible that you have been suffering from a case of satanic amnesia. Forgetting what God said to remember. Where God said a day part is holy. You say, oh, it's not a big deal. I don't keep any day holy. I just any day is holy. Or this other day is holy. God says, no, no, no. The seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. Now, I ask you if it was clear, and some of you raise even both of your hands. Praise the Lord. My appeal to you tonight is not to come down front but I want you to go home, and I want you to think, and I want you to pray. I want you to review what we've studied tonight. Look up all the passages. Go through the sequence of thoughts. See from the very beginning, the Creator God, the very end, the coming King is the same person, and He's the Lord even of the Sabbath. And those who love Him will keep His commandments. And you look at all those texts, and you say, Lord, if in ignorance I have been sinning against You, Thank you for overlooking. But now I know. Now I know. So my challenge to you, my appeal to you, I don't want to say it's a challenge, but I appeal to you to make plans this very week to right what has been wrong. And this seventh day, for some of you, keep your very first Sabbath day holy. It's a powerful thing to see God's Word and to start walking in its commands. Now, it may not necessarily make you popular. Christianity is never called to be the most popular thing. Christ himself wasn't very popular. His own people killed him, amen? But he was faithful to God's law, even at the very end. And apparently, he's going to have a people that are just like him. Say, Lord, I see it in your Word, and now I want to keep it. I would beg of you, find a Sabbath-keeping church. In fact, you've already found one. And to incentivize, we're going to add one more meeting to this week and next week. We're going to add a Sabbath morning meeting. Now, at 9.30 of this church, there's a Bible study class. Classes are available. Please come and join them. And at 11 a.m., we'll be having our church service proper. And at that time, instead of a regular Sabbath sermon, we're going to be having one extra meeting of our Keys of Revelation series. The message this coming Sabbath morning will be, the day the devil dies. Okay, You've been studying how the devil began his work in heaven, how God has been working even through the cross and through the end time events, and yet even at the second coming, Jesus, oh, you got to come. You don't want to miss the day the devil dies. That's the incentive, right? But the real appeal is to walk humbly with your God And see from his word what he expects. And say, Lord, I will trust and obey. Let's bow our heads for a prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for being our creator and our redeemer in your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, thank you so much for giving us this blessing of the Sabbath day's rest. Where we don't have to labor and do all of our work but we get to spend 24 hours with you, putting all other things away, preparations have been made, and we can fellowship with our fellow believers, that we can commune with you in your word. We can be about your business instead of our own. Thank you for the blessing, the gift of the Sabbath. And Lord, I especially want to pray that this message has been clear, and I praise the Lord that that has been testified to. But now the next step, Lord. May those to whom this message is new or different or startling or perhaps even scary, Lord, help them to see that wherever Jesus is, we don't need to fear and that your word is trustworthy and accurate and it's you saying that the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Lord, bless us. Help us to be faithful to you in all areas. Thank you for giving, for for, for overlooking or winking, as some versions say, at our times of ignorance. But now that the light has come, help us to walk in the light as you are in the light. Keep us faithful and help us be more like Jesus every day, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more.